Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer and my guest today is Aisha Salam. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of conversations with spiritually awakening people. For more information or to support our efforts, please go to batgap.com. And if you go there, under the past interviews menu, you'll notice a new item, which is a geographical guest index, in which you can type in a particular location. And if any of the people I've interviewed are teaching in that area, you'll see their name pop up. And if you try that and nothing pops up, broaden your search. So for instance, if you try Manhattan and nothing comes up, try New York and then you'll see a bunch of things. And so after I interview Aisha, you'll see Denmark and uh, perhaps other places where she teaches. So I have a, a fairly long biography of Aisha here. And uh, I actually found it very interesting. I want to kind of pick it apart during the first part of this interview and um, ask her a bunch of questions based upon it. But first I'll read the, the first little bit then we'll get talking. So Aisha Salam is a woman in truth. The deep integration with her human being gives way for her to operate across all levels of being with an indefinably transparent yet deeply tantric approach, which has no seed of renunciation based on rejection or avoidance, but has fulfillment and completion and thereby freedom within existence as beyond it at its core. For more than 12 years, Aisha has been cultivating and realizing in deep surrender the truth of being across all different dimensions, over heart to mind and deeply into the gut. Her dedication has brought her into realization of herself as universal consciousness beyond existence into the absolute and back into existence as the true incarnation. So even that, Aisha, gives us some stuff to start with. I like your use of the term dimensions because I really feel like we are multidimensional beings, you know, and a lot of times people try to oversimplify, in my opinion, and dismiss the whole notion of there being different dimensions on which we have to operate. So what would you say about that for starters? You know, I could say that there is a fullness in acknowledging the different dimensions, which allows us to realize source through and to the core in a way which doesn't dismiss neither the acknowledgement of ourselves as nothing, as the absolute, which doesn't dismiss our recognition of ourselves as the deeply divine, and which doesn't bypass the reality of the deep humanity and the human qualities. It's interesting that you should outline it in those three levels, because even in the ancient Vedic tradition, they spoke of Adi Atma, Adi Daiva, and Adi Bhuta, meaning the, the sort of the absolute, the divine, and the world. Those three dimensions being the realm within which human beings are capable of operating. I know that you didn't really have any formal teachers in terms of human beings. <laughs> Most of them were sort of disincarnate, and we'll get into that. But, you know, I've been listening to your recordings for the last week, and you have a great deal of ability to articulate all sorts of traditional teachings that you probably never even studied in, in terms of books or anything. No, never. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing what you actually can download in pure surrender, simply. That's how really you got most of what it is you're teaching and that you know is just a kind of a download process, right? Yeah. Yeah. Surrender, yeah. Where did this start? In your biography, you said you were born in 1979, uh, raised in a non-religious family in Denmark. You began in a, living a, very, a fairly conventional life and attained education and business school and established a family and had a child and went to work in a big international film, firm. And then it all settled and it became obvious to you that this life was unfulfilling and things began to change. 
Um, mm -hmm. You say in your bio that at the age of 24, the question, who am I, arose in your mind and the demand, with the demand for truth. And yeah. uh, you just mentioned the word surrender. You said, <clears throat> due to complete surrender in love of herself as all, life broke loose, knocking down every illusion of individual existence through one and a half years of extreme spiritual unfoldment. Let's talk about that. Well, there was a, a strong living which made it possible for me to actually attain the, the goals that I wanted, establishing the family, all of the things that I thought that I wanted. And as everything fell into place, it was just very obvious that there was something off in that. And the reality of that was that, well, I was missing from that equation. And it had been an establishment of what I've actually just, if you look outside yourself, what you see everyone else doing. So in that, I just actually fell completely asleep. And at some point, there was that ignition where I realized the duality in that. Where all of a sudden I realized the two voices, the voice of my brain and the rational, and then the voice of my heart. And right there, of course, that who am I? That question rose very strongly and required answer. How could I live a life if I didn't know who I am? So when you say you fell completely asleep, you mean you're just so into the, the family, the business life and all that, that you had lost all sense of who you were. There, there was no, yeah. no quest for that, but then that quest arose again. Mm -hmm. You know that life where everything runs on schedule yeah. and where there is like the ongoing drill day by day, mm -hmm. which is based on the things that one thinks one has to do. Mm. There's very little room for freedom in that. Now, knowing what you know now and having developed in the ways you've been developing all these years, even though you're not living a conventional life even now, would you say it would be possible to and yet have the sort of realization that you now have? Or does realization necessitate an abandonment of conventional life in some universal way? You have to kind of define what that conventional life is then. Because mm -hmm. if the conventional life is living according to a specific set of movements, a specific set of fitting into something, then the answer is no. In a way, you could say that the human living is definitely possible. And in that sense, there is the, the deeper and deeper invitation down into what just looks normal in a way. But at the same time, it, it completely is penetrated and permeated by truth and source and the birth of truth through everything. So would you say that a person could be a, a mother raising a few kids and yet be a deep mystic, you know, with a foot in both camps, so to speak, or a businessman, you know, running a business and yet have that sort of deep mystical and experiential awareness? Or do you feel like that profound spiritual unfoldment is necessarily going to entail a, a complete disruption of almost anybody's life as they know it? Definitely, yes. It is disruptive, completely disruptive. It dismantles everything. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, in passing through that, there is no limit to what you can do. What there is uh, a very definite to what you want to do. And that very definite want to do is, is based on the surrender and that which is most enriching in terms of that birth of truth. So in other words, you might have your plans and your intentions and your goals and your thoughts, but the deeper truth has other plans for you and you're going to have to relinquish your individual plans if you want to live that deeper truth. Is that what you're saying? Well, surrender is just like becoming a slave of God, isn't it? So following that life and life's intention in that is everything. Is surrender something that one can do willfully? Okay, I really want this, I'm going to surrender. Or could you end up 
getting caught in just following whims if you think you're surrendering, but you're really just kind of like going with whatever pops into your head and you're not actually surrendering to higher truth. Surrendering is an inner gesture. It's an inner gesture of letting go. And that letting go is not just a melting down. It's not just a melting down and letting things fall off. It's also at the very core of that, a rising, a rising as the very pinnacle of truth, that which is the core strength of you. But I mean, can one choose to surrender? Or is it something that just sort of grabs you when the time is right? In a way, you could see it like from the conscious point, the willingness to surrender means a lot. It's like the tip of the iceberg, but it's also that tip which in its, in its basic humility, that willingness to surrender, actually that reveals and unveils the whole capacity of life itself through you. So in that sense, yes, it is in part that part of being willing to take full responsibility for yourself, for living a life in truth, in full self-honesty, in full honesty to everything around you and anything that has anything to do with you. In your experience, both your own personal experience and the, your experience in dealing with students, if you call them students, is surrender or is the cultivation of that willingness something which goes from zero to 100 in a snap? Or is it something that you move into by degrees and you can only go so far and get established there and then you can take the next step? Well, there are phases in all of this and the, the purification of consciousness is a step-by-step -step deal. Mm -hmm. because what's coming in there in that purification of consciousness and not to mistake that for the awakening itself, awakening beyond existence. But within existence, there is a wearing down of the resistance to the full surrender. And that's the same as stepping step by step into a more and more full dedication, a fuller and fuller dedication, which brings every part of your life step by step into that clarity, into that simplicity, into the freedom the spiritual freedom. So it sounds like you're saying that the purification of consciousness happens by degrees. It's a progressive process over time, but there's a difference between purification of consciousness and actual awakening, right? Mm -hmm. But would it be true to say, and maybe you've just sort of said, that the purification of consciousness is a kind of a prerequisite or a preparation for full awakening or, or a profound awakening that well, is it a prerequisite? You could say in a way that most people, when they start embracing reality, when they start embracing truth, they start looking for reality. They look for truth, but only within that which they know. Mm -hmm. And to start out with, since identification is with existence, there is body identification, there is identification with me, then that looking for truth becomes a looking within existence. And the bursting of that bubble cannot really happen without us wearing down all of that which is trying to solve, trying to find reality within existence. And so the wearing, wearing down by definition is kind of a, a progressive process. If you want to mm -hmm. polish a stone, you know, the stone doesn't go from rough to polished in one mm -hmm. moment. It has to sort of go through a tumbler or something and get mm -hmm. gradually worn down and become smooth. I guess the, the question arises, how? And we're speaking in terms of general things. We're going to get back. We're going to get much more into your particular story. But you know, a person listening to this, they say, "Okay, that sounds good. I want that to happen. How do I make it happen?" <laughs> How do I make it happen? Or yeah, that, even that's yeah. a contradiction in terms, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, but we have to use some words, I guess, yeah. to define this. There is no right and wrong in terms of doing this, not doing this. In a way, you could say that everything comes down to connecting and deeply 
emerging as the core voice of your own being. It's like falling in love with yourself, but doing it in a way where you come into full respect of yourself and through that come into a spiritual maturation, which then actually in the process of that makes way for and sharpens the sword, which in the end can cut the head off in a way. You could say it like that. It's in very few words, this it's very simplified. It's got many phases. And in a way you could say that there is endless alleys of being waiting to be discovered and waiting to be aligned and acknowledged through our beings. The potential is endless. Yeah, I find that exciting actually. And uh, I want to talk to you more about that. Some people say there are 7 billion people on the earth. Therefore, there are 7 billion paths to God or to, re to realization that no one size is going to fit all. And, and if you take that attitude, then all the different people doing this thing and that thing and studying with this teacher and practicing that practice and so on, they're all following their own course towards the ultimate, the same ocean ultimately. So would you agree with that? Definitely. Yeah. In the work that's happening, through this being, there is a recognition and a seeing of the, you could say, the soul blueprint for each of the people who are appearing. And this blueprint is different for everyone. And that's a part of what actually makes their way their way. In this way, we can't really establish a teaching like that, like walk these steps and then this will happen because mm -hmm. the very core of each being is defined by what and where am I pulled if I'm listening to myself. And if I'm following that authority of my own being without the compromise of selling out on that voice inside of me, how can I be supported in that? And that support becomes the facilitation and that as teachers, as far as I can see, is that's what needs to be supported. It's not about the step like this or step like that. It's more like allowing and paving the way for the listening to become deeper and deeper and deeper. So right now you're teaching a retreat in Denmark and you've got about 20 people on the retreat. And so when you sit with a group like that, do you actually cognize in some way the soul blueprint, as you put it, of each of those people? Or do you have to kind of go in depth one on one and get to know a person much better before you get a sense of what this soul, their particular soul blueprint might be? Well, in a way, you could say that the, the recognition which has happened through this heart in terms of the purification mm -hmm. has revealed pure consciousness or what I could refer to as God realization. Mm -hmm. It's the same as the loss of the container, which makes any kind of separation between that which is registered as me and that which is in front of me. And in this regard, when I'm sitting with people, I get all of the information on these people. And that means that it's not something that I get, it's just present. Mm -hmm. And in that presence, my body just comes to operate completely spontaneously according to what's needed for each individual. But it is completely individual. It doesn't mean that there is not speech which can and does reach uh, many people and take many flies in one whoop. <laughs> but, <laughs> but Kill many with, birds with one stone. <laughs> <laughs> but within that, it's basically, it's like, that which makes people special is the way that they are tricking themselves. That's the specialness. But the uniqueness is revealed through the invitation of the individuality of that soul blueprint, so to speak. So are you saying that each person has their own special way of tricking themselves? Is that what you're saying? We each, we each have our own little tricks. To, and tricking ourselves to do or not to do what? To, to wake up? We, we trick ourselves yeah. to stay asleep? Is that what you're saying? 
Yeah, yeah. It's like the, those loops that the, that the mind is running, that the feelings are running. What is consciousness doing? Mm -hmm. How, if you, if you imagine that every human being has like a, a dashboard, that dashboard, the, the buttons on it are set differently on mm -hmm. each person. And then it's about like turning that button a little and turning that button a little. And that actually unleashes this and that. And then everything falls into place accordingly. And then it's <laughs> about like how much can people take in terms of getting those buttons turned up to straight. I'm laughing because we just spent 25 minutes trying to get the audio balanced <laughs> between you and I, and we were tweaking buttons for all that time. Um, so you say when you when you meet with a person individually or interact with a person, you, you, you receive a lot of information about them. Is it the kind of information that you could sit down and talk about for 10 minutes, you know, this, 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 or is it more kind of a feeling, non-verbal, non-conceptual kind of thing that you're tuning into? As such, I don't go rummaging for information. There's no doing here in that sense. So when you say this, that I receive a lot of information, actually, I don't receive anything. Because in a way, you could say that my being is constantly seeing. So this seeing, then it's about, okay, the human being moving in front of me. The same seeing, which is the case all the time, then just sees what's in front. And when that human being then communicates, then it's about seeing, okay, what's in play? What's in play? Because you can't give one answer to one specific question right. because it depends on what is speaking. If there is a speaking from the sincerity, if there is a speaking from the willingness to surrender, then the answer itself comes as a soft breeze, you know, a soft breeze leading that deeper into itself. If it comes through or as a uh, resistance, then it's an entirely different answer. And then it's a pointing out and the pointing out comes out through sharp clarity. And that straightness actually cuts down that which is standing in the way. So it's a rewiring of consciousness, so to speak, that's going on in the meetings. Does this happen with you all the time, like when you're in the supermarket shopping, or is it mainly when you're in a teaching capacity in, in a meeting? Well, as we talked about with these different dimensions, the freedom is actually not being stuck in any dimension. I can step freely into the being nothing. I can step freely into being everything. I can also step freely into the being human. And it's not being a human, as in the identification with it, but it's in terms of where do where is the I placed in terms of these dimensions. And since there is no reaching for realization and then clinging to it, if there's like a constant letting go of realization, then everything reveals itself and everything becomes free and up for free movement within that roundness of being. And when you say that you step into these different dimensions, does it have to be this one or that one or that one? Or can they be simultaneous where you're kind of operating across a spectrum in a number of dimensions simultaneously? But that's always the case, isn't it? I should think. It's yeah. always the case. Yeah, yeah. But maybe the, would you say that there's a kind of a shift in the, you're out, the spectrum is wide, but the actual focal point on that spectrum kind of moves according to the mm -hmm. circumstances. Would you say that? Yes. But according to the circumstances, always depends on what's necessary for the birth of truth. Right. So when picking stuff out of the supermarket, <laughs> well, yeah, it's very simplified. There's not much need for a sword to go through when I'm picking vegetables, right. you know. Right. But, but if I go to the cash register and there is a situation going on up there, then the powers, they can like flip into the, into the core of whatever is going on in a second. So it, it operates very intelligently, actually, mm -hmm. when it's free. I find this interesting, and I've had this kind of discussion with other people as well, that, you know, this kind of like um, 
flexibility between or among dimensions where one just spontaneously naturally shifts one's orientation or focus according to the need of the of the moment need of the situation which is basically what you just said but I just want to reiterate it because I think it's a valuable point and I think it's valuable because some teachers they seem to be a little bit monochromatic or something they seem to be emphasizing one dimension to the exclusion of the others I'm not sure that's really as helpful in a way I could say that it seems to me that there are three alleys through which we can get stuck in realization and that which grasps which started out grasping our identity as a me as a separate me that can just as well grasp nothing it can just as well actually grasp love and it can just as well grasp power and these are the three temptations so to speak which show themselves in the further deepening into each of these dimensions hmm. power is that which reveals itself in the gut and love is that which reveals itself in the heart, of course, or God, call it whatever you want. And then there is the absolute, there is the void, there is absolutely nothing in that recognition through the headspace. And each of these can, by that which grasps, actually become, it's like, um, it can become a hideout. As in there is, there is some kind of fuel which sets off towards a realization. But that fuel often can be connected with a certain life pain or something. And that also means that once the recognition comes, if there is not a full passing through the temptation of grasping either of these love, power or clarity, if there is not a straight passing through those, then they can become a hideout. And then, of course, that becomes the very basic of the, of the teaching, which goes through that teacher as well. But it becomes based on an avoidance of meeting deeper oneself and, and further oneself in either of the dimensions. It often happens like that. Without naming names, I can think of examples of people who are, I would say, are grasping the nothingness mm -hmm. and just sort of emphasizing on that to the exclusion of the other dimensions. I can also mm -hmm. think of spiritual people who have gotten drunk with power and gotten on power mm -hmm. trips. But I can't think of an example, and maybe I need to have you explain more clearly what you mean by somebody who could grasp on the love dimension. What would that look like? That would look like uh, often spiritual mothers. That would look like a place where there is a sacrificing going on. You understand? Because mm -hmm. within the whole resolution and the coming into full transparency, there are certain tricks that the system can be playing on itself. And the savior syndrome is one of them. Mm. The moment that the surrendering human being surrenders, but in that bypasses the human realm, wherein that the spiritual mother then just becomes supported by a lot of other people which actually is taking care of that human being. I mean, it's, it's a beautiful and it's beautiful intention and it's a beautiful cause, but there is a greater alignment which, which awaits, which is a lot more sustainable, so to speak, because right there it, it can be based on, yeah, as I said, the savior syndrome is what I refer to it as. When you say yeah. spiritual mothers, do you mean like Ama, whom I have? picture of over my shoulder or Karuna Mai or Ananda Maima or, or you know, Mother Mira, those, those sort of lady saint type people, or are you referring to something else? That alley, yes. Yeah? So you think that that's actually a, a cul-de-sac or a grasping or a... No, it's not so much as a grasping. I mean, every, every blueprint has a different shape it wants to unfold as. But in terms of that which is sustainable for every human being to realize, there is an invitation wherein the human being itself is not bypassed as a human being, mm -hmm. or in the human integrity, the human wisdom comes out as an emanation of source through all three, through all three dimensions.
and all three dimensions as such doesn't pass by that integrity of the human being. Mm-hmm. It's almost like I could say that there is a respect, a deep respect for every human being's life and living. Do you understand? I think I do. Um, let me make sure I do. For instance, the, the examples I just mentioned of you know, those saintly women, most of them, as, as far as I know, certainly respect, well, one of them is deceased anyway, and my mom, but they respect and seem to love very greatly the human beings with whom they interact. But there also seems to be, and I've had personal experience with three of them, there also seems to be you know, the transcendent dimension very profoundly, and, and that's where they ultimately reside. And then they're, you know, they are powerful. You mentioned power is one of the three dimensioned dimensions, but don't seem to be abusive of that power as far as mm-hmm. I can tell. It's not like they've gotten stuck in it. No. So there does seem to be a dimensionality. But you said just a minute ago that everyone has their role to play. And, you know, the Sanskrit mm-hmm. word is dharma. We all have mm-hmm. our different modes of expression. And, you know, what I'm going to do is going to be different than what you're going to do or what mm-hmm. somebody else is going to do mm-hmm. in terms of being really a servant there, of God. There are, there are different tasks that we all have here. Yeah, different yes. roles to play. Let me get back to your story a little bit. Reading on in your biography here, you said... Your massively expanding consciousness sent you through daily trances, bodily burning, periods of bodily paralyzation, layer Mm -hmm. after layer of consciousness breaking your existence down and revealing the reality of yourself, capital S. So um, that's reminiscent of what you were speaking about a little while ago in terms Mm -hmm. of purification of consciousness. Yes. And it's an interesting thing, I think. It's not something which everyone seems to go through, uh, at least not everyone has gone through it Mm-hmm. yet and yet has made very profound spiritual progress and, and, mm-hmm. and had profound spiritual awakenings. But a good many do go through it. And mm-hmm. in some cases, it's totally incapacitating. And if they don't know what's going on, they can even go running to psychiatrists or something trying to figure out what in the heck is happening to them. So yeah. how, long did, yeah, <laughs> how long did this last for you? And um, let's talk about the phenomenon in general of having to go through sort of intense physical purification yeah it's like in the surrender itself there is a core acknowledgement of not bypassing the body Uh and in that a lot of phenomena show themselves and how it was like well for a year and a half there was daily or constantly expansion of consciousness Mm -hmm. and within that like yeah all sorts of things happening like trances and resetting of everything and having to relearn everything over and over and over again and like everything that comes with that basic stuff like brushing your teeth and or relearning what kind of stuff it's like when you wake up in the morning and you have no clue what what is and then okay you have no clue what you're supposed to be doing and you're actually just a blank sheet of paper and then waking up without any kind of personal preference. This is just an example, you know, there are so many different angles of this and so many ways to be deleted and flushed down the toilet because that's basically what was happening. Waking up in bed and not really knowing what you're supposed to do or like, okay, so there's something called clothes and what am I supposed to do with it? And it's supposed to go on the body and stuff like that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so basic stuff like brushing your teeth. What's this thing? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. What was your orientation to this as it was going on? Were you encouraging it in some way, hoping to even accelerate it further, or were you resisting it, or were you just kind of along for the ride and just sort of innocently letting what happened happen? In a way, you could say it was a very, very strong decision and commitment to love. 
right there, I mean, love and the purification of the heart, the burning of the self-center was the entrance for, for my being into reality. So that was the first and was also the first place that I got stuck before I acknowledged that there was the option of getting stuck there. In going fully into that surrender, it reflected itself completely into my living life, into my decisions, into anything that had anything to do with me. So you knew that something good was happening, in other words, and you didn't go running to doctors or, or whatnot. You Definitely thought, not. Yeah, you realized, okay, this is some kind of spiritual uh, yeah, it's transformation like, you know, taking place. In a way, you could say, okay, today, this uh, the evolution of consciousness is kicking everyone's ass in a way. So you could say that I stepped in front of it, and that meant that the, the tip of my iceberg, the conscious me, mm -hmm. was stepping in front of it by being cooperative with whatever was going on by being willing to take full responsibility, by being willing to let existence twist and turn exactly the way it wanted to, by listening to myself. So you're right, I didn't read any books, but what I did do was to investigate myself and my ways, my life, my thinking, my feelings properly in a way where I could tear off all of the things which had anything to do with what had been put in there. Mm -hmm. Like the voice of the parent, all of the people, everything that had been considered to be authority. And dissecting everything that I saw around me in a way where I could see that, okay, hey, no one knows what they're doing. And if no one knows what they're doing, then I better listen to me. Because then I trust me more than I trust anyone around me. Like mm. that. Did you manage to stay married during this phase or had that already ended? Actually, the marriage was over. Okay. Um, and how about your I, child? Is it a daughter or a son? Yeah, I have a son. A son. So yeah. what was happening with the son during all this? Well... He was pretty I, young then. Yeah, he was. At first, he lived with me. Mm -hmm. And he lived with me for the first six years of his life. And this was going on from he was around two years old. Mm. So in that time... Um, <laughs> so you, he was teaching you how to get dressed rather than the other way around. <laughs> yeah, kind of. <laughs> kind of. It's like uh, the universe always supplies. The universe always helps out. So in that sense, when there is that willingness to surrender, then all of a sudden, whatever is needed, it appears literally on the doorstep. So I had people helping me through that phase. I had people helping me in terms of taking care of the child so he wasn't left alone when I all of a sudden drifted into these trance states and all of this. So there was a good care taken of him. Yeah, you were lucky to have that because I don't know about Denmark, but in this country, if someone was going through that kind of stuff and had a small child, there's a very good chance they'd have the child taken away, you know, because people wouldn't understand what they were going through and they would, you know, think that this, this woman is incompetent and, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. child would end but, up in social services. Yeah, but there is something about this and that, that is that the certainty of what was going on, mm -hmm. even though no one around me knew what was going on. I had a friend who had been going through a phase of his own awakening and in that, in that meeting with him, it also accelerated itself. But within that, also knowing to stay away from the people. I mean, when I look around, I knew that no one knew anything. And that just meant that whatever was going on with me, that I could stand with the power of that and trust in that. So no matter what it looked like from the outside, I could keep on repeating the fact of trust me. Did you and, ever have and, doubts and about everything. it? Did you ever go through periods of, is this really, am I really onto something or am I going crazy? Did you ever have those kind of thoughts? Never. That's good. Never. We're going to get into some more stuff in a few minutes, but I, I have a feeling you're one of these people who did a lot of spiritual practice and made a lot of spiritual progress in past lives. And uh, you're just kind of like, when you came into this life, it just kicked in again and the process mm -hmm. continued where it left off. Popping. <laughs> Popped in. <laughs> yeah. 
Okay, so a bit more from your bio here. As life penetrated your body, demanding you to swallow the pill of purification, realization happened gradually by your being becoming pure life itself. In the realization as universal consciousness, the answer became clear. God is love and life is me. Any comments about that? There's not so much to say about it, is there? No. So it's realization the, happened gradually. The recognition came to itself. It's more like the wearing down of all of that which rises as separate from what's around it. So in a way you could say that that which can appear as separate from everything else, it just had a lifespan. It had a so-and-so many times it could rise as separate mm -hmm. from anything else, almost like the sexual energy has so many shots. And when they're worn down, then there's just uh, that wide open. So the recognition of love and the complete breaking down of love as anything just remains as the recognition as pure life. And in seeing everything and sitting on the couch and at the same time seeing people on bike in China, I mean, there can't really be any question of <laughs> what am I? <laughs> okay, so in what you just said, you threw in a, th a few things there which are kind of might be head scratchers for some people. So you mentioned sexual energy and went right on to other stuff. So this whole transformation that you were going through that we've been talking about with all the burning in the body and the purification taking place and all, are you implying that all had something to do with sexual energy? In a way, you could say that the sexual energy is just pure life, pure energy, but with the twist of identification on it. Uh -huh. So sexual energy is it's not really about sex, it's more about the, the fact of an identity, a rising of pure life, which then carries a seed of wanting or not wanting on it. And that becomes the very definition of identification and identity, a rising as that. Yeah, I understand. Um, so same energy, but mm -hmm. maybe you could even say it this way, that if it gets kind of stuck at a certain point, or I think you said grasping or wanting, then, mm -hmm. then it takes a sexual form, but if, if it gets unstuck and, and moves on, then there is no longer the, the sexual flavor to it. It's more of a kind of a higher energy or a heart energy or, or something like that. I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but is that what you're saying? Yeah, basically. Okay. In a way, you could say that that sexual energy is actually what carries the whole train of realization. Mm -hmm. Because the sexual energy itself is that which needs to be directed inside through the whole nervous system and all the winds of the of the nervous system needs to return to its very source for awakening for instance so even that which goes out through the heart that's like one way around it but that's one realization that's one dimension of realization the life in moving i went from the recognition of myself as god self as the heart realization which self but from there, there was a calling back into solitude, and that solitude actually allowed the flipping from the pure heart to the pure mind. It's a very small step. Once the purification of consciousness has happened, then that step into pure mind or actually beyond existence is not so very big. Interesting. Yeah. I think this might start relating to, or maybe we were already past the point of, of introducing the, what you experienced with these various Tibetan masters that you mentioned in your bio and I think it'd be interesting to talk about that. So you received instruction, if we want to call it that, and we can elaborate on what that actually was, from three or four different um, disembodied masters who lived, you know, as much as 
almost a thousand years ago, starting with a Tibetan master, name uncertain, possibly Jwala Kul or something, who appeared for a year and a half as a supporter for the revelation of self-God during your initial surrender to life and ended in a merger with that master. So mm -hmm. that's also rather specific and we're going to get into several others. What was the actual experience of that? How did you know it was a Tibetan master? What, were you seeing the face of a Tibetan master clearly? Were you receiving any kind of verbal um, instruction or transmission or what was going on? It's like if you see the, the whole process of the surrender that uh, my whole body went through and I went through, mm -hmm. that happened through everything. And in that, there was from the subtle spheres, there was an appearance. And the appearance itself, uh, there has been a lot of work happening through the dream state. It seems that the Tibetan masters in, in really... In you, you mean? With you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So right there, the meeting itself mm -hmm. with this master appeared. And that was like a seeing, total seeing of him. And to start out with, I thought he was a Chinese master. I thought that for a long time, but then there was a recognition of the energy and a picture of Jival Kul at some point, but mm -hmm. it's, it doesn't really matter. The point in it is that it was like, there was like a constant exchange of information between that being, that bulk of consciousness, so to speak, and this one. In that initial surrender, it showed because of course, then I came from identification itself, which was being reversed back into, into everything. And in that, there's a lot of tests, there's a lot of revelations of abilities, powers, all of these things. And within that, um, you could say that this being was a great helper in terms of being a protector of, a protector of existence by being a constant reminder. It was, it was just like being a, like a, a tap on my shoulder. If any carelessness showed itself within my being, in terms of, okay, if something reveals itself and I had a pretty immature mind at that point, I mean, there were parts of me which were just completely human and playing and stuff like this with things that shouldn't be played with. Mm. So in that sense, there was that protection and that constantly having a teacher and all of the time being able to, to tap into to that bulk of consciousness, to connect with that deeply into that in a way where I actually could disappear from this plane of existence and then just be with that teacher. And that then over one and a half years, it just ended with uh, a visit and then actually uh, a coming down into this body. And that was like open brain surgery <laughs> happening for a couple of hours. And after that, that being has only appeared from within my own being. But you could say that the, the knowledge of that being is a part of what is teaching as this life, as my life when there is teaching going on. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned dream state. So was mm -hmm. all this interaction with this Tibetan master in the dream state or was it also happening in the waking state or in a meditative state or something like that? In a way, you could say that that, that year and a half was a complete entering into a deeper and deeper meditative state mm -hmm. because it wasn't like, or it was like meditation started living itself through me. And in that, seeing him happened on, in the dream state but there was the feeling and the hearing, the voice, stuff like that, could still happen just by the waking state. Okay. So what this implies, and we're going to talk about some more of these masters, is mm -hmm. that there are enlightened beings hanging around on some level who are overseeing things on earth. Maybe Jesus is such a being. There's so many people who have an orientation to Jesus and who intervene or who get involved with certain people when they're ready to move on. So they're really serving as gurus, even though they don't have physical human bodies. So, so is that what's really happening? 
far as you know. Yeah, it seems yeah. like it, yeah. yeah. I mean, in a way, I could say that the way that I've been taught through these masters is also how people are in communication and cooperation with me. I also appear in people's dream state. There mm -hmm. is a conscious moving and teaching on that level of being with people. And uh, how does this differ from channeling? A lot of people are into channeling these days. Define channeling. Well, as I understand it, when I see people channeling, they actually serve as a, a kind of a spokesperson, a loudspeaker or a conduit for a particular entity or being who may be an extraterrestrial or something like Saint Germain or, you know, different things. And they actually take on a different voice sometimes, a different accent when they're channeling this entity. And they, they, <laughs> they go on and they say things and so on. And then when they're finished channeling, they go back to their normal voice and their, their normal self. Maybe you could distinguish. You asked me, how is it different? Yeah, well, how it's, does it contrast with what I just described? What, yeah. what you had. It, it contrasts in the way that here at this point, back then, there was a tearing down of everything which pointed back to a me here. Mm -hmm. And that means that all of the knowledge which was installing itself was, was installing itself as me. So in that sense, everything, everything is me. So in that sense, there is that recognition of everything as being me. And in a way, I can't really uh, say that there was a finding back to who I was. There isn't something there and then that moves out of the way and then there's something else and then something comes back. It's like if there is a real and total dissolve, a happening of transparency of the personal, that personal which is standing in front of the wisdom itself, which is standing in front of pure being. When that is dissolved, then there is nothing to come and go like that. Then there is just the wisdom, being. Okay, so just pressing you a little bit more on this. So this Tibetan master had a certain level of enlightenment, a certain level of, a certain degree of wisdom, a lot of knowledge and so on. And you kind of were able to download that. And you said that these days now, you know, there's really no distinction. His wisdom, his consciousness is part and parcel of what you are. And there have been some others that we're going to talk about. And yet I would presume, and correct me if I'm wrong, that uh, this being this Tibetan master still retains his own autonomy and is still functioning. Perhaps he's even helping other people, such as he, of the way he helped you. So it's yeah, not, not like he kind of dissolved like a sugar cube into some water. Definitely uh, not. He retains his autonomy, you retain yours, but somehow you have imbibed or incorporated his consciousness, his wisdom yes. into your yes. being. And yes. th that's an interesting phenomenon. Can you explain a little bit more about what that is or how that works? Or? In a way, you could say that that which normally is considered to be a separate self, mm -hmm. when the layers of that separate self gets to fall, when the limitation gets to be burned away, then it's actually a recognition of that one being. Because actually consciousness is consciousness and all knowledge is within consciousness. Yeah. So thereby, it's like opening doors and doors deeper and deeper into ourself, into that knowledge, which is the total knowledge of everything. So in the revelation of that, there is a shaving down of everything which is not everything. You understand? Yeah. Anything which is not everything is that which gets shaved thinner and thinner and thinner. And that just becomes a revelation of source as the wisdom in a way you could say. Despite the fact that there is a constant forging of keys which is going on, keys of consciousness which is going on, which fits the times going on through this being. At the same time, in a way I could say that I have, I have and I am absolutely nothing in that sense. Because the only thing that's happening is a coming in of that total knowledge which has been accumulated through these uh, wise beings over all the time that has been. 
So it's interesting yeah. because each of these wise beings could say what you just said, which is that the totality or the absolute contains all knowledge. It's a home of all knowledge, you could say, mm -hmm. and that they are one with that and therefore have all knowledge. And yet each one has his or her own individual expression. Mm -hmm. And somehow each one, and there were several we're still going to talk about, served as a kind of a catalyst for you mm -hmm. to maybe unfold a different dimension of total knowledge within the absolute, some such thing. In a way, you could say it's like, at this point in time, the potential of that evolution of consciousness, it, it has never been what it is now. That potential in terms of what can be unfolded as the very recognition of source through the human being. Wait, you mean for you, for all of us, for who? For, for everything. For, for, for everything. everything. Okay. For consciousness itself. The potential has never and, been what it is now. So in other words, we're, no. in, we're in kind of a really unique, special time. Of course, uh -huh. but the unique special time has always been there because this consciousness as it is now with the knowledge that it is now has never existed. In this way, the existence itself is constantly accumulating greater and greater knowledge about itself. So when there is the work going on with so many people now, it's because consciousness itself is ripe in terms of bringing the knowledge of itself home. And that just opens the door for so many people and it, it requires a forging of keys which fits the times because the times right now, they are very hardcore. And what I can see through this being is that that hardcoreness in terms of the extent of the clarity and the extent of the love that that comes together as a compassion which fits the times. When you yeah. say the times are hardcore, do you mean like a lot of intensity in the world, like ISIS and terrorists and all that kind of stuff? It's really sort of a problematic time in some respects. Is that what you mean by hardcore or no, something that, else entirely? I'm talking about deeper than that, because okay. what you're talking about, there is just a reflection of whatever is going on, the reflection of the level of misunderstanding, the level of the ignorance. Mm -hmm. But what I'm talking about is the extent of that ignorance, the extent of that darkness, which is present and that which needs to give in. Mm. That which is standing in deep resistance to itself. And so I, I sort of get the sense you're saying that the times are such that the rug is kind of being pulled out from under that deep resistance and that, that ignorance, that um, it's on a very shaky ground. And, and uh, there's this kind of, obviously this is something I've already thought about before, but that there's a sort of a, an acceleration or, or a quickening of consciousness in the world, which is causing entrenched ways of, thinking and being to crumble. You're Isn't saying, that wonderful? Yeah, it's great. It's very <laughs> good time to be alive. Amazing time. Very interesting. Yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely. Within that, it also requires, it's like that the level of the ignorance is also the level of the potential. So that potential itself is waiting to come into its full expression by us taking full responsibility. But that responsibility needs to be taken. And this is where it requires some heart. When I say hardcore, I mean it, it requires some heart, some solid footwork inside of that. Yeah. There's this thing they call a Chinese curse, which is may you be born in interesting times. Well, we all did that, didn't we? Yeah, we did. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're hanging out up there. Oh, it's getting kind of boring. Let's go down and <laughs> jump into the fray. And then you're saying later was three years of communing with Long Chempa, who lived, who actually lived from 1308 to 1364, a major teacher of Zogchen in Buddhism, exo and esoteric transmission, which entailed two years of preparation and significant further purification of mind before teaching could happen in eight months of transmission, which also ended in emerging with that master. So two years of preparation before further purification of mind, before even teaching could happen. So what, what was that two years all about? 
that was about tearing down anything within my living life which could want anything. It was about meeting any angle on self which could insist on love. In a way, you could say it was about wearing down the attachment to love. Hmm. And when I mean love, I mean self. So for yeah. two years, you wore down the attachment to self, to love, yeah. to individual yeah. self. No, to the self, to God. Oh. Yeah. Well, if one is God ultimately, or is the self ultimately, how can one be attached to it? I mean... Yeah, but that, that's what I'm saying, that in that passing beyond existence, there is a coming. It's almost like when we realize self, I could call that the foreground. It's a purification of consciousness that leaves consciousness. The discovery, however, was that there is consciousness and then there is pure awareness. Consciousness is conscious of something. Consciousness is conscious of itself. While the pure awareness, which was the result of that emptying out, it was a dying of consciousness in terms of a dying of the experiencer. And that in turn, that left a deep merging with the void, with absolutely nothing and a passing. Uh, not just into life, which was the initial move, you know, the, the dying to life, the dying into the flame, but actually a passing beyond life and beyond the flame, which was a, a complete death into absolutely freaking nothing. <laughs> okay, so the way you're defining the words consciousness is already mm -hmm. a sort of a stirred up value in which there's some diversity conscious of something. But then pure awareness is more primordial than that. No mm -hmm. diversity has yet emerged. No bifurcation, no manifestation has yet emerged. And exactly. So, and so you're talking about going through a phase where you kind of shifted from pure consciousness, which is could be said to be self-realization, right? But that's what, I, that's what I would call it, self-realization. Yeah. yeah, which many people probably would feel is the ultimate. How can you go beyond self-realization? But but yeah. you're you're saying that there's a deeper shift that can take place into that, something even more fundamental. Yeah, it's like the, the recognition, the self-realization is, a, is a, an actualization of existence, mm -hmm. existence itself. But what I'm saying is that the passing beyond that actually opened the door for non-existence, opened a door for a total recognition emerging into no self, no self, that which is prior to God. So when you say, okay, so at the self-realization stage, pure consciousness stage, you're saying there's still a sense of self. This pure consciousness is myself. I am that. And then you're, but then you're saying that, I'm, I'm repeating your words in order to see if I've got it correctly. But then you're saying that beyond that, more fundamental than that, there's no sense of personal identity or self whatsoever. Is that correct? Yeah, what happens often is that there is a falling into that. There is mm -hmm. a meeting with and a realization of self that often can turn into the God realization where many can be in that part of operating as the one life as love. But on the other side of that, the recognition of the absolute as pure mind, where it's not just about the whole, the whole body and the whole body of the universe being recognized to be the body of me, the body of God but where there's actually a passing, not only through the light, but into the darkness. So that passing into the darkness, often it's met, the nothing is met, and then there's a return from that. But in my experience, that meeting with nothing became a cultivation that lasted a few years, a cultivation of that nothing, which actually spread and turned the meeting with the nothing into a revelation of the primordial silence, 
which is a sweetness, which is even prior to that sweetness of life itself. Interesting. Yeah. That's beautifully put. So when you say there's a return from that, would that return be necessary in order for this to be a living reality? Because it seems to me that if there's no sense of personal identity whatsoever, or falling into complete blackness, complete nothingness, mm -hmm. then it would be hard to function in that state unless one had somehow integrated it to some extent with mm. more manifest levels. I could say in a way that unless there has, the body has come to a complete standstill, this that I'm talking about cannot have been realized. That period where all of the winds of, of life, all of the winds of the nervous system, where they return to the source, is like a breaking through the very core of the head. Mm -hmm. And it's like a flipping out of existence. Or it's not even a flipping out of existence. It's a dying out of existence because it doesn't leave an experiencer. Mm -hmm. When you say the word nothingness, it's a, it's a big misunderstanding to call it nothingness because the moment that there is someone experiencing the void, it becomes nothingness. Mm -hmm. But when there's a deep dying into the void, it's just nothing. It's not nothingness. It has no taste. It has no color. There's no experience of it. There's just a complete disappearance beyond existence. Is there any recognition at the time that that is the reality or anything? Or could there not be because that would necessitate a recognizer, someone to actually yeah. say, hey, this is going on. And, and even that would be too active or too manifest to fit it's what a, you're talking about. It's like the recognition of self, of mm -hmm. pure life, of love, of God. That requires only a willingness to surrender into that which is greater than oneself. But to go out and burn that pile of a million dollars that you have attained through that cultivation of self as greater and greater self, ultimately resulting in that realization as God, to go out and burn God in the backyard, it's not something that the ego wants. Mm. And that means that that dedication to truth has to be 100% total. Because only there can there be a proper meeting and a proper dissolve beyond existence, because it's actually the same as the total meeting with death. So you said something about the body coming to a complete standstill. Are you talking about the kind of thing that, you know, yogis might attain where there's a complete cessation of bodily activity when they go into deep samadhi? Mm -hmm. Is that what you're saying? Okay. Yeah. And I also heard you in something I was reading, you were talking about actual physiological transformation in the, in mm -hmm. the brain and in the head where you're actually feeling all kinds of shifts and pains yeah. and pops and openings and, <laughs> and <laughs> yeah that's like, all part of the existential you know the, the purification of consciousness yeah where the head gets rewired and all of this mm -hmm. but i could say that even in the process of this there is also the physiological uh, signs of that which is like it's a it's a rewiring of the senses a complete rewiring of the senses because the someone living through the senses mm -hmm. the someone registering the hearing the taste the seeing if everything is surrendered, then right there, there is not, um, and actually sound becomes just sound. There is not any filter on it. There is no someone hearing it. And it means, yeah, again, it's a physiological thing as well. Sound is sound and there's no one hearing it, but still, mm -hmm. if someone says, hey, please pass the salt, the salt gets passed because there's some kind of interpretation of that sound, right? Yeah. It's a funny thing. It's mm -hmm. like after, in, in that death, in terms of that recognition of the void, the recognition of that primordial silence, that that is the coming into the full wakefulness. Hmm. And it's not wakeful of something. And that's why there is no experience here, because it's only the intensity of pure mind. It's only wakefulness. It's only pure awareness. Hmm. 
Yeah, so the moment that consciousness happens, that's actually the happening of life, and then life is the case, then God is the case. But through that dying, there is no, and this is why it so probably rarely happens, is that the ego cannot want this. Everything that the ego could ever attain by walking the spiritual path, anything that the ego could ever gain, or anything in terms of coming into a greater realization of itself and the divine ego, everything goes. And in that, there is a total trust that needs to happen. A total trust that even if I let go beyond existence, then life will reappear. Mm. And it seems that it did. <laughs> <laughs> so the ego can't want it because it's going to mean the annihilation of the ego, right? And the ego doesn't yeah. want its own annihilation. Yeah. But you're saying that having taken that leap then life reappears, I think, the way you put it. But it must reappear in a way which is radically different than when you dove into it. It's, uh, it's beyond the ability to manipulate life. Yeah, it's beyond the me. It's beyond the self. It's like losing every bit and piece of the belief system. Normally, there is a reduction of the belief system down to just believing in God. But right there, God remains. Self remains. But if that last piece of self if that last piece of God also goes, then no belief remains. And then right there, it's actually like the balance point of all of this becomes, and the art of all of this becomes, the ability to let life live itself fully and in its full potential, to live itself strongly without believing in it. But it's not like uh, someone pulled back from life. It's more like the complete knowing that none of this is real. And the fact of being able to deal with every bit and piece of what that means, all the way down on a human level, to be able to deal with the fact of meeting the reality of the true incarnation, where actually God is coming into the body. Can the conscious mind deal with that? Can the mind deal with the fact that all of this is bendable? Bendable, and it, you say? Bendable, yeah. yeah. Can every part of being acknowledge and be with the fact that reality is as great as it is. So yeah. when you say belief system, and, you, and then you also use the word bendable in the same little discussion, I get the sense that belief implies some rigidity, because you're clinging on to something that, I mean, if we're experiencing something, if I say, I believe I'm seeing my hand, it's, a, it's absurd to say that because we're experiencing it. But usually belief implies faith in something that we're not actually experiencing. And people tend to be rigid about that sort of stuff, you know. Oh, Allah is the only God and Muhammad is his prophet or Jesus is the mm -hmm. only way. Or, you know, they're believing in things rigidly because some book says it or because they, it makes them feel secure, but, but they're rigid. And mm -hmm. so what you're saying is that a complete relinquishment of belief is, goes hand in hand with complete flexibility or bendability. Definitely. Okay. Yeah. But I'm not. I'm not just talking about well, when you talk about this. We're believing in that or believing in this. I'm talking about demolishing the belief system in a completely intimate way, where whatever you believe in, all the way down in the very subtle layers of your mind, whatever is being taken, even by the bodily structure, is understood to be real. Where does the body react as if what it's experiencing is real? Where can fear rise? Where can there be this rigidity coming in, in terms of closing down and believing in limitation? Mm -hmm. So in that sense, it's like the complete demolition of the ability to fear. 
I'm following you. There's a phrase in the Upanishads that says, says uh, certainly all fear is born of duality. And mm -hmm. it sounds to me like you're talking about a, a going beyond duality in which one passes through a sort of a sound barrier of fear and beyond fear, and mm -hmm. also a sound barrier of belief where we're clinging on to certain concepts and we have to relinquish those concepts in order to break through that sound barrier. Yeah. It seemed like there was a way through the individuality, that willingness to love oneself as a separate individual. That's like the first step where, where a lot of people get stuck. Mm -hmm. Then there is the further on from that, the, the recognition of oneself as pure love, the realization of oneself as divine, as God, mm -hmm. by the complete burning away of, of all of the limitation within the heart structure, within the sense of feeling, because that's through where being can be felt not just seen but felt and then from there there is a, a moving further in terms of the recognition of truth through mind itself and that becomes a full seeing that becomes a full stepping into the clarity of oneself not as god but as nothing whatsoever so it's the emergence of clarity itself as that diamond sharp clarity which is just awareness from there again then a further coming back down into existence as the very incarnation of that, as the very merging between that light, which at that point is permeating the cells and emanating through the cells, but at the same time coming in as the very blackness of that void, which is between the cells. And this, in my experience, is uh, coming in as something completely organic. That's the experience of it, the, the coming in as black light sort of, into the body, hmm. that black light, which is the result of the recognition of the light and the darkness and that coming together. If we take God to mean all-pervading intelligence, which permeates every particle of creation from the smallest to the, the hugest, and which s seems to be just orchestrating everything with, with perfect correlation and perfect synchrony. If we take God to mean that something like that, then what is your orientation to God now? Because you've said several times something which seemed to apply kind of going beyond God. So how do you relate to God as, as I've just defined God? In that sense, you could say that my relation to God right now is that I am very, I'm experiencing a deeper and deeper coming in as that transparency which transcends the human being and yet makes everything deeply human, giving in the human teachings, deeply human teachings. Mm -hmm. At the same time, there is an experience of or no longer a need to rule out the fact of the human being in its separateness. And from that level, there is a relationship of deep devotion, a deep devotion to God. But from the level of my heart and from that recognition, there is a seeing my little human being being in that devotion. At the same time, there is a seeing from nowhere at all and knowing that clarity of just pure awareness wherein everything is going on. So you could say that God is life in space. And at the same time, I could almost point down to that little Aisha body as being a vessel down into the fact that this earth is the heart of the universe. Hmm. Nice. It's interesting because sometimes non-duality, that word has a rather dry connotation, you know, oh, non-duality. There's no sense of devotion or love or God or anything else. It just it sounds like just flat 
mm-hmm. oneness. And yet the great masters, <laughs> mas- <not> oneness. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the emptiness, you know, like a, yeah, yeah. A, like a still ocean with no ripples on it or something. Mm-hmm. And yet the great Advaita masters, Shankara and Ramana and Sargadatta, all the rest, seemed actually to have a very devotional dimension to their lives. And Shankara was famous for saying that the, the intellect imagines duality for the sake of devotion. If you want to see it, it's like in that recognition of everything and in the going beyond the identification with the body, there is nothing which needs to stick with the no ripples. It doesn't mean that the no ripples is not the case. It's just that part of being which is no ripples. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't rule out the fact of allowing existence to be existence. And in allowing existence to be existence, there is an invitation right there for the fact that of the unending potential of the ever ongoing deepening into a further transparency to source itself. And that's where the human being, where if there is that invitation and that willingness to let the devotion be the case, because devotion can only happen from the smallest part of us. Mm -hmm. So that smallest part of us, which is the humanity, can be brought deeper and deeper into the reality of God itself, which is already existent in, in space. And right there, there is nothing which needs to be ruled out, because right there, that invitation of that smallness is actually the very key to further, you know? Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. Um, so ripples are allowed. <laughs> ripples are okay. So you, you know how it is if you're lying in a bathtub and you're lying really still for a long time, eventually you don't feel the warmness of the water, but then if you start moving around a little bit, you feel the warmth. And so it's almost like, hey, ripples are good because they stir up the bliss, you know, they, they stir up the devotion. Not only that, but they also give. The fact is that there is, from the human perspective, all the way down in the human body, there is the option of a learning, of a bringing in reality, bringing in nothing and letting nothing, that that marriage between Shiva and Shakti, Mm -hmm. letting nothing and everything happen as the very birth of that human wisdom. Mm. And it's so infinitely beautiful. Why would we want to pass on that? It's like, it's the very pinnacle of realization that we can come into that humanity because right there, that's the unfolding of the enjoyment body. And not only that, it's the birth of beauty. The birth of beauty happens right there and it happens through something as small and sweet as the human animal body. And why do we even exist as human beings if not for the possibility of something like this developing? Exactly. But not only that, there's also the fact that when we're doing this, we get to see perfection happening through our human body and it's deeply satisfying not because i mean it cannot be perceived from the from the conventionally thinking mind where there is okay then i get to be perfect because it's not about the perfection itself it's not about whatever realization you attain it's about the further it's always about the further hmm. and the further and the further so right there that wiggling in the water is not only about stirring up the bliss it's also about um, spotting where can further learning happen Where can more ignorance be burned out in terms of the coming together and the alignment of every aspect and every dimension of our realization? So if someone were to say to you, I'm pretty much done. I've I've realized everything there is to realize in terms of enlightenment, development of consciousness and so on. I'm just kind of resting in that now. And, uh, (laughs) you know, the... The, the wagon has is no longer being propelled. It's just sort of running down. What would you say to them? I would say you're a fucking liar. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> either that or, or sincerely blocked off from a bigger possibility that they didn't realize existed. I mean, maybe they're feeling that they're honest in terms of their experience, but maybe they don't realize that there's actually another infinite number of horizons yet to reach. The thing is that there is always a deeper in terms of allowing the learning, allowing the teaching, allowing reality and source to penetrate through our beings. Mm -hmm. In that sense, from the experiential point of view, it can be that, okay, there is nothing more to get because that's a reality. There is no one getting anything. Right. But that doesn't mean all the way down into the human perspective that there is not a deep coming into that wisdom, which then allows that birth of truth. But in this sense, we cannot say that, okay, you know, I'm done. Because as long as there are people around you, you're not done. That's the reality of this because you're not a separate individual. Yeah, I mean, also, I mean, think of these different masters that you have learned from Padmasambhava and, and the rest. At one point, those were human beings living on Earth who theoretically might have said, I'm done, but didn't say that. <laughs> you know, and who have gone on to whatever state they're in now and are interacting with people such as yourself and serving some kind of function on some level of, of reality and some level of the universe who, to my way of understanding, must be extremely advanced souls, more, more advanced than we're likely to find running around here on Earth. So, uh, e and even for them, perhaps, there's are further horizons in, in terms of their evolution. It seems that there is a karma that needs to be completely burned off in the sense of us doing what we need to do here. Mm -hmm. But the moment that there is nothing left for us to do here, we won't have the human body. Because evolution of consciousness will always continue. And that means that the moment that there is nothing more that we're supposed to be passing on here, in that moment, the evolution of consciousness actually just, it just becomes a falling off of the body, right. it seems. Yeah, yeah. And that, that work, it keeps on going. You know? Yeah. But I mean, the implication is that these guys have some sort of body, maybe celestial body, and, and they're just functioning on some level, helping to facilitate evolution of people on earth and, and so on. That's what I inferred from reading, you know, and hearing about your interaction with them. Mm -hmm. Right? Oh, would you agree to that? Yeah. Okay. And so is there any, anything else to be said about, I mean, we skipped over several of, of the other ones, Yeshe Sogyal and Padmasambhava, and then I think his, his consort or his partner or something, you all, you had similar interactions with those as, as you had with the ones we've already mentioned. Um, mm -hmm. is, is there anything you'd like to bring out about those interactions? If anything, I could say that that which happens in all of this is that there's a happening of a greater and greater humility mm -hmm. in terms of anything which can think it knows anything. Mm -hmm. I've had the fortunate uh, destiny, apparently, of working quite closely with uh, Yesha Tsugyal for some years. And at some point, there was a flipping of her into this being and that actually opened the door to, to Padmasambhava, as you said. But again, uh, I really like it that we don't make too much out of this. Well, it can, get, the, a, it can get all woo-woo and esoteric and, and all exactly. that stuff. But it has exactly. been your path, you know? I mean, this has been major, yeah, been major for you. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. When it comes to this Padmasambhava thing, I could say that even at this point, it seems that, I say even at this point, it's like that which people call enlightenment is the, is a graduation into the beginning of the evolution of consciousness. <laughs> so in that sense, I'm a newbie, but there is great learning going on from both Yeshe and Padma still. I love that perspective way. and I, I love the humility bit. I mean, that implies humility that you, you're saying that I'm a newbie. 
and that we're all just beginners, you know, no matter mm -hmm. how advanced mm -hmm. we may be. And that's why we're here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it requires fear to attain a human body, simply. Fear so as long or as courage? <laughs> Both. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's no, not an easy I mean, trip, you know? No, I know, but the, the, the happening of fear has to be the case, otherwise the ego cannot exist on this plane. And if that's the case, there is no, doesn't seem to be an option. There is the stepping in of masters here. Uh, who come to do whatever they're doing and well I don't really want to go into that there's no need for that but in terms of that which comes in and becomes human that which comes out as through the human flesh and all of us who has to go through processes to attain the knowledge of deeper knowledge and then of deeper knowledge and further and further all of that seemed to happen through first off the existence of fear because it seems that the only thing that falls away is fear well, that kind of relates back to that quote I mentioned earlier, all fear is born of duality. I mean, it's sort of like, as if we're in duality, then at the basis of that is fear, mm -hmm. right? And it, it's sort of a goad or a, pro, a cattle prod to kind of, well, it's, it seems like it can, it can be both an incentive and a deterrent, you know, because there is this fundamental fear and we want to resolve that and not be based on fear. But on the other hand, people often report an accentuation of fear as they move toward that threshold of going through fear. And often they recoil from that threshold, like, whoa, I, I can't go through that. And, and they retreat back into some false sense of security. So I, I know you don't want to dwell on the, the woo-woo, esoteric stuff. <laughs> but, I mean, you know, if we're actually painting the full picture, this, yeah. this stuff is as real as anything else, and it, it has been extremely significant in your life and is now still. And so you also mentioned meetings with beings of different traditions like Ramana Maharshi, Nisargadatta, Ananda Maima, and um, intense communications with them and, and so on. It would seem like all of these characters that we revere and respect and admire have not disappeared entirely as some cosmologies which suggest that we do you know some say it's like a drop going into the ocean and you can no longer distinguish it from the ocean but it would seem that they all still have some kind of subtle but active role to play in evolution of our, of our planet they're they're serving some function still definitely huh. <laughs> it's a big mystery isn't it yeah i think it's fascinating I don't know. This kind of thing can seem irrelevant to a discussion like this. It can seem like an indulgence in esoteric speculation. But if it's someone's actual experience, then I respect that. Or at least I give them the benefit of the doubt, even while sometimes take, <laughs> taking them. I always also take everything with a grain of salt. But in your case, not much salt, mostly benefit of the doubt, because you, know, you really seem genuine in what you're saying. <laughs> the thing uh, is that it seems that whatever is going on here, if you want to see it like that, okay, Aisha, or I could just say me, as a human being, stepping into this world, by there, okay, there is a, a really, really massive pull into and devotion to love itself. Mm -hmm. There is a big yearning for discovery of love itself, which then starts happening. From there, you could say that the Sadhguru just took many forms because all of these beings were speaking to me through my own heart. Mm. How my own heart? Because through my own heart, existence is realized. From there, you could say that, okay, so all of these beings have installed their software in this one. And that also means that at this point in time, through the work that I'm doing, there is, despite the fact that I'm not doing a single thing, there is 
many occurrences happening. There is a lot of shifting shape between all of the beings that I actually am in this uh, having golfed up these different bulks of consciousness. And in a way, you could say that it's all about love and it's all about that play of consciousness. So it just appears like that. And, and in a way, I could say that, okay, Long Chenpa very much, when does the, the flavor of Long Chenpa appear? It's when someone is ready to get the transmissions of pure mind. So what does that look like? It looks like, uh, again, everything is one-to-one. -one, but when there is a readiness for that transmission, it comes as a punch through the brain in that meeting. Huh. At the same time, we could say that, okay, if someone is ready for the heart itself, okay, so what happens? It becomes an appearance as what? An appearance as pure love, an appearance as God, as pure light. But there is a big difference between the transmissions that occur. And right there, you could say that even the, um, what I could refer to as the black mother, which is the coming together, it's the mature love. It's that love which isn't just love, light and bliss, but which has weight to it, which has depth, which has the opportunity of actually facilitating enlightenment, which has the, the option of actually going at the resistance and actually removing what needs to be removed and not just patting on the head and giving the love and then be on your merry way, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so it's like that mature love it's not just about healing what's here, but it's also going so much into the depth where the black mother is operating herself as that black light. Mm. And that black light is it's deeply intelligent because it's not just handling itself as the sweetness as the, and the softness. It's also got the, the very compassionate sword. Right. When I say very compassionate, I mean that whatever needs to be cut down for the real blooming, the real blossoming of life to happen, sometimes that's what's called for. And then that coming together of the light of, uh, and the darkness is the birth of that black mother. And that's deeply connected to the God, because right there, there is not just love as in God. There is also the integrity of earth itself. There is the integrity of, she's like a grandma where the mother still has her sexual energy. The grandma is deeply settled in. She is very warm. She can be very kind, all of this. But if she needs to give a whooping, she does that too. It's, it's kind of like that. Yeah. <laughs> but so that just becomes the reflection of all of these masters and all of the knowledge that they have been inserting and still are inserting. Are new ones coming along or is it just basically the same bunch? No, at this point in time, it seems that the whole lineage of Padmasambhava Yesha, like the whole lineage of that knowledge of deeply tantric knowledge, which thereby doesn't surpass the human being in any way, but deals with the sexual energy all the way down in, into its very house, where the, into the very power of creation itself, that it's dealing with everything along the way up to the, the recognition of absolutely nothing hmm. and love on the way of that. Sounds yeah, like so, it's mostly a Buddhist lineage. You yeah, and it's a, it's a funny thing because I, I, I haven't ever really, I haven't ever studied Buddhism in this lifetime. Yeah, that might have uh, been your orientation in the past. Yeah, it seems like it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So oh, there's been a lot of appearance of, of specifically that Buddhistic, uh, Buddhistic knowledge. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. So just to reiterate a bit what you just said, it's, it's, you've been kind of imbibing different qualities from these different masters and kind of building a toolbox, so to speak, with different tools in it, which are applicable to different people in different situations, each, each master having contributed certain tools. It's kind of reminiscent of, you know, the Hindu notion of there being... Uh, you know, one Godhead, but then all these different gods, which are sort of yes. different, the manifestation of different qualities of that one Godhead. 
And, exactly. And when you say the black mother, you know, um, cutting with a sword, it sounds like Kali, you know, who is all uh, depicted with a, a ring of a necklace of skulls, which represents the egos that she's kind of cut down mm -hmm. with, with that sword. Or even better, Chinamasta, you know, because the truth is pointing every which way. It's, I'm not familiar uh, with Chinamasta. Is that a Buddhist? Uh, uh, I think it's a Hindu, oh, yeah. Hindu goddess. Okay. But anyway, she has decapitated her own head as well. <laughs> she's not just standing with the scimitar. She's standing with the scimitar in one hand and her own head in huh. another. Yeah. <laughs> so um, you're teaching a retreat. You just came back from South Africa. You're coming to California in a couple of months. And yeah. so you travel around a lot, mm -hmm. meeting with people. What actually happens when you are interacting with people? Do you just sit and talk and everybody listens? Is what you're actually saying pretty irrelevant and it's mainly a transmission thing that's taking place in the room? <laughs> you know, what are the mechanics? Give people a sense of what they could expect if they went on to one of your <laughs> retreats or something. There are some YouTube videos that people can watch. And so they can yeah, see. you can watch some of the videos. The yeah. thing is that I have a million faces. And whatever is necessary is that which happens. And that means that you can't really expect anything. There's no way that things are going on. Often it happens through uh, the conversation. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people don't speak and that becomes, well, then Shakti starts pointing out that which needs to go in the room by itself. Sometimes people speak up and it happens that way. It's actually most fun that way when people are like cooperative, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Not that it stops anything, but, uh -huh. and then there is uh, well, it just, it happens in, in, in so many ways. Mm. Sometimes she, yeah, well, no, never mind. <laughs> Sometimes she jumps on people. So we'll have, it can happen in so many ways. Yeah. Okay, so in other words, you're not stuck in a rut. It's, it's um, you know. I have no way of doing anything that requires someone doing it. And I can only say that that which is necessary happens. Yeah person could go on five different retreats with you and each one might be kind of different every every retreat is different yeah, yeah. I um, have this uh, I have this retreat program where well I, I take in the people who really know what they want and then we go for a longer stretch of time hmm. but yeah it's possible to read more on that on the website okay yeah. so in other words when you give her you have more advanced programs or retreats or something mm -hmm. which are open to those who are more dedicated or more experienced? Is that what you're saying? Uh, well, it's it's not so much with the experience, but it's very much about the dedication. Because it's like if there is a stepping in, I mean, it, it's already going on in the satsangs and even in the smaller retreats that, okay, but if you come into that space, it's like, it's like agreeing to lose everything. Yeah. Like agreeing to lose your ignorance, and in that, I when it comes to the retreat program, I very much insist that I'm with people who are willing to take the responsibility for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that the transmissions come in somewhere where they can be held and can be carried out as the application of oneself as reality in life. Are you harsh with people? I mean, we're talking about cutting off heads and, and all that stuff, <laughs> <laughs> you know, some teachers are borderline abusive sometimes in, in interacting with students, you know, yelling at them or, or is that really not, <laughs> is that not your style? I have no style. Okay. That's the, that's the funny part of it. So I don't think I've actually seen you yell at people yet. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, but, we'll, we'll, we'll be, we'll be but careful. I have, but, it's like, <laughs> but in terms of this abusive and stuff, in a way you could say that it's not possible for the conventional mind to understand what's going on at a satsang. Mm -hmm. It's like every movement of the body is in the process of 
uh, recoding and rewiring consciousness. And that happens in, in various ways. So if I'm sitting in front of someone and I can see that that someone is running in a circle, I can see how consciousness is moving and that button needs to be turned. But that which is keeping the button on the dashboard from being turned is uh, an energy of a habitual energy circling around itself. Sometimes that needs a straightness to come through it. Mm. You know, it's just like bursting a bubble. And that bursting a bubble, not necessarily very pleasant, but it happens. If you're interacting with somebody like that and you see something that needs bursting or turning, um, how, what, what is the main way in which you actually do that? Is it, I mean, is it like the words are just the tip of the iceberg and, and you're using words, but, but primarily uh, there are sort of subtler dimensions on which the work is being done? Completely. It's like if, if you see all, the, all these different levels of existence mm -hmm. and then it's just like the calibrating calibrating the being and mm. that needs to happen but there has been a lot of purification of speech for instance so the the part of speaking becomes a great transmission so some happens through or actually i could say that the transmissions happen through that dimension of being where there is a readiness for it but in most cases i can see that there is a working of transmission through every dimension of being at the same time okay. so that can, so that can look like it can, well, it can either be an appearance of great intensity, let's call it like that, or it can be a human appearance, but no matter what the appearance is, the transmission is that which is the core of the whole thing, because that is actually what is pushing the ignorance out of the way. So right there you can say, what does it come down to? It comes down to if there is a, a stepping in front and there is a presentation of, well, agreeing to truth then right there, that's the same as saying a willingness to lose your illusion. Mm -hmm. If there is that willingness, then I don't really care if there is resistance or if there is surrender. Again, I don't take people into the retreat program who are in resistance. It doesn't mean that the people on the retreat program doesn't have fear in them. It just means, is there a willingness to surrender or is there not? If there is a willingness to surrender, we can go a lot further, we can go a lot deeper. And also the transmissions, again, they become more and more and deeper. How do you screen people to determine whether or not there's going to be resistance? Well, I receive applications. Uh, it's described online, but basically it's like people write to me. But the okay. moment that they write, I can see who wrote it. Uh -huh. And in seeing who wrote it, uh, again, I also receive a picture. And then I just, I just look at the different levels of existence and I, and I can more or less see if there is a if there is an agreement with the totality of this being. Hmm. Because if there is somewhere in there where there is a deep acknowledgement of, for instance, love or a deep preference for, for space, either of those, and I can see that it's covering over something else, and then I don't see the willingness to allow a penetration through all of the dimensions, then right there I know that that human being will be sitting there and be in resistance mm. to receiving on these other levels of being. So it comes down to very much how far does that acknowledgement of the need to penetrate through all of the dimensions, how far does that go? Hmm. And, and you can, you can that, actually, you can determine all that from a written application? Well, I mean, I very much get the sense of who's writing. I see yeah. who's writing, more or less. And then if there, is a, if there is an agreement and I can see that, okay, it could be possible, then I take a 10-minute Skype meeting with them and then that kind of determines it because then I see the whole shebang. I see. Yeah. Huh. Mm. Think I would qualify? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's start by coming to the set, sir. Yeah. <laughs> so what kind of results do you get with people 
probably there are certain people who've been coming with to you for years now and um, what sort of changes are you seeing in people are, are what degrees of awakening are, are they undergoing I think you should ask them but I would say everyone changes I haven't ever had anyone in retreat who hasn't had their life drastically altered by it which right. is also why I, I have this retreat program because I kind of the transmission which is happening is let's call it valuable it's called what it, it, let's call it valuable, valuable the transmission yes. which is happening is valuable because it's not just like I don't just sit and then I am what I am and then people tap into what I am and then they go back home and then after a week everything is the way it was before. Mm -hmm. If there is the actual work going on where we confront that which is standing in the way, then it is like a rewiring of consciousness. Mm -hmm. And when that happens, there is nothing to return to. The ignorance which was there is burnt. So in that sense, I take them, I take them into my energy body and, and that fire which is here just burns everything. Not in one go, of course, but, no, as, but far, as much as they can take. A, a significant time. chunk of it. Yeah. Yeah. So as long as there is a willingness to then follow up on that in the living life, to allow the changes to happen, mm -hmm. that's basically what it comes down to. Then, well, then there's no limit to how far we can go, is there? So how do they follow up? Let's say they go on a retreat and they're not going to see you again for six months. What do they do during those six months to kind of keep the momentum going? You can't say that, that they do like this. Mm -hmm. It's like that, that which is moving out of the way makes it possible for them to listen deeper. And then in that individual communication, right there opens up the alley for, okay, so here and here and here, there can be like a work with this next. So it's almost like homework, <laughs> except it's not, you know, it's more like, where is there room for a deeper penetration? Where can the purification of consciousness, consciousness how can that be best carried in now to support the totality of the roundness of being, because that's very much what's happening. There is a constant invitation to that roundness of being, which allows not just one single dimension to be penetrated, but a, a constant refining mm. of that of the human being in, in every part of its realization. Yeah, it seems like it's be a matter of keeping the willingness alive, and then so when, once the fire has been lit, it'll continue to burn as long as you don't throw it's water on it. It's, it's what we started out by saying with step by step of that coming into the full dedication. Mm -hmm. Because to start out with, it is about allowing um, that which is identified to come truly into that tip of the iceberg needs to turn itself completely towards that dedication, which allows the effortless, the full capacity to come into being. Okay, now I don't want to end on a mundane note, but we've been talking about embodiment and, you know, fully embodying this profound reality in an in a tiny human life, as you put it. In terms of your tiny human life, do you have much of a life? Do you just travel around and teach? Do you still interact with your son? Do you have a partner? I mean, go and visit your parents? I mean, is there still all the normal human stuff going on with you, or are you just totally... All of it. All of it? All of it, yeah. Okay. I've been working with my parents for quite a while. I worked with my mother for three years to tear down everything that was role-playing within that. Mm -hmm. In terms of my son, again, a tearing down of the mother role in me and a meeting. Again, about bringing all of the people in the living life into that soul connection where it's about the happening of truth when we come together. Mm -hmm. So right there, there has been a constant willingness and a constant application of that birth of truth into every alley of being, which hasn't really reduced anything down to anything. But in one way, you could say that there has been a complete reduction because there is tr truth happening across everything. In the moment now, there has, um, I have a partner 
And we are very much working on the real unfoldment of the deep humanity, you know, a, a deep coming into the human qualities. And it's fucking hard. <laughs> yeah, it must, must be a, a rather intense relationship. <laughs> it's, it's very intense, but it's also, it's so intelligent. It's so intelligent to see how being, when it's reflected between man and woman, who are both in that total willingness and total dedication to truth, mm -hmm. when that willingness is there to let life work itself out, to let it hollow itself out, just like two mirrors in front of each other, just reflecting endless universes. Yeah, that must be beautiful. incredibly evolutionary for the both of you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Amazing. Interesting. Well, congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> All right, so let's conclude. This has really been a fascinating conversation. I think people are going to love this interview. I'll be creating a page on batgap.com, as I always do, which will link to your website and to anything relevant. As I mentioned in the beginning, there is a geographical teacher location page on Batgap now, which you'll find under the past interviews menu, and there you can search and find out what's going on in your particular area. And also, of course, be linking to Aisha's page, and she lists her events there. You mentioned you'll be coming to California pretty soon, and you probably go all over the world all the time. More general points. This is an ongoing series of interviews, and there have been, I don't know, 270-something of them now. So if you go to batgap.com, you'll see them categorized and organized in various ways. And you'll also see a, a future interviews menu where the upcoming ones that are scheduled are listed. There's an audio podcast of this. In case you don't feel like sitting and watching videos, you can subscribe on iTunes. You'll see a menu for that. There's a donate button, which we rely upon people clicking in order to be able to do this. There's a place to sign up to be notified by email each time a new interview is posted. You'll see that menu. So just go there, check out all the menus, and uh, enjoy. Thank you again, Aisha, for this. I've really enjoyed this. I know you're in the middle of a retreat. You probably have to go down to dinner and get back to your group. Back to satsang here now. Back to satsang. <laughs> Hopefully have a chance for a snack. So thanks a lot. Thank you, Rick. Bye. Bye-bye.